0: Our gracious God, as you spoke by the power of your Holy Spirit through the prophet Isaiah, so we pray now by that same Spirit at work in our lives, you would speak to our hearts in such a way that wonderfully transforms and changes us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with a a kind of light-hearted start, but one that's actually got a serious point to it, and ask you whether you've ever tried to change someone's heart. Have you ever tried to change someone's heart? It may be that... uh, you've had in the past, or perhaps even as you wandered across, you notice that you still have your eye on that special someone in this very room. Her laughter floats across the room, his smile lights up your day, and you find yourself unable to concentrate on anything other than the possibility and you hope the inevitability that she, that he might love you like you love. But sadly, that person does not know you even exist. And nothing you've been able to do has been able to change a person's heart. Unrequited love. For me, Lisa Gray in the third grade. Since then, of course, it's just been untrammeled success after success. But for you, perhaps still struggling. Or go to the other end of the relational spectrum. Perhaps you've had an enemy, not just someone you don't get along with, but a genuine, out-to-do-you-harm kind of enemy. This person despises the ground that your feet have trod. Uh, When I was at school, I had an enemy Uh, I was bullied by an older guy. He didn't know me. He didn't know that I really wasn't the loser that he saw me as. He didn't understand that I was a real human being, witty and interesting and full of insightful views on all sorts of things and nothing I could do could change his heart. Most of what I did was just run away. Uh, That was unlikely, I guess, as a strategy to change his heart. Hearts are very powerful things, aren't they? You can't crack them with a sledgehammer. It takes the person themselves to do a job. Hearts are impressively powerful things. And Isaiah the prophet was a prophet of God to a people with hearts of unbreakable, unmovable stone. Uh, Hard-heartedness is a problem for us all, I think. Uh, It's even a challenge for God. It costs God immensely in the end to change the hearts of his people Israel. Hearts of stone, I think, are all too familiar to us. We see them around us all the time in tutes and tracts and lectures, uh, in the people who sit about us. We see them even perhaps at home amongst uh, unbelieving family and friends who all together are oblivious to the goodness that God has shown them. And perhaps from time to time we see hard hearts inside us, not just around us, but inside us, as we examine our own hearts from time to time. And as I say, Isaiah was God's prophet to a people with hearts of stone. And my prayer has been and is that as we look at this prophecy over the course of this year, as we hear God's word, that our hearts will be softened and expanded and made wonderfully tender, a little more like the Lord Jesus himself. We're going to start with some background. Isaiah didn't just sort of walk into a vacuum. He was uh, prophesied into a context. We learn in chapter 6 verse 1 that Isaiah was called by God to be a prophet in, in what was a magnificent moment, an encounter with God, a quite stunning proportions, We're going to spend some time on that next week. In the year that King Uzziah died, that's 740 BC. 740 BC translates into the 8th century. If you haven't figured out why it is that numbers that begin with 7 turn into the 8th century, then just think about it for a little while. It's to do with the fact that there's no 100 in the first 100 years. Uh, anyway, ponder. Uh, the 8th century BC had on the whole been a superb century for both parts of the split kingdom of God's people. Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And I'm going to draw you a map. Oh, the Mediterranean. Okay, geography's not so good. Ready? Here it is. Here's the Mediterranean. Looks like this. Uh, you've got the boot on the end here. You not know that itch. Okay, you've got this sort of big blob that comes down there. You not know that extra. Ah, you guys are so good. There's some art students out there. <laughs> Uh, underneath the corner here is Egypt, which is hard the right. On the edge here is Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is the centre of the southern kingdom. Uh, it's split under the last uh, reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and Jeremiah it's split into two sections. The south is called Judah, and it's the Judah that is basically is diproxied. The north is called Israel, confusingly, because Christ split Israel with the whole thing. And above Israel is another country called Syria. In terms of the Middle Eastern geography, you may know that this whole area here is called the Fertile Crescent. Uh, there are two big rivers that run down here. Anyone know them? Yeah, you guys are so good. Uh, and the nation of Assyria was roughly over here. This is all desert. No one walks through that, no one goes through that So the only way to get to Israel is around the top here Down through Syria from the north You often hear a devastation coming to Israel from the north Everyone understood what that meant was The bad guys, either Syria here or later on uh, Babylon uh, But not for a couple of years Would come down over the north, through Syria, through Israel Down through Jerusalem On the world scene in the 8th century, there was something of a power vacuum. Egypt, who had run the joint for a little while, was in decline. And the next world superpower, Assyria, as you see over there, was dealing with internal struggles. And Israel is wonderfully well positioned to take advantage of this power vacuum. She exists on very significant trade routes, from this side and this side over into the uh, East. Very significant trade routes, and like all uh, towns that live on trade routes, that. Uh, in in times of peace, uh, that is non-military conquest, led to a massive economic boom within Israel. Massive economic boom, not unlike the 20th century here uh, for us over the last hundred years. Massive, unprecedented really economic boom. What often goes with that uh, is a serious military machine to develop. And again, we've seen that in the 20th century. And so uh, this enabled Israel, both in the north and Judah in the south, Uh, to expand her boundaries to recapture nearly all of the glory days of 250 years earlier uh, under King David this is a seriously impressive time, the 8th century now there was a little bit of economic oppression sure, but that's just the way it is you're going to let things take their course yes, there was a bit of religious wheeling and dealing after all, you've got to get on with the foreigners don't you going to do trade with them, learn their languages go to their conferences, worship in their temples all that kind of stuff that's just how it has to be well the boom wasn't to last too long Assyria was on the rise particularly in the last third of the 8th century and was aggressively expansionary 734, Israel's, sorry, Judah's northern neighbours Syria and Israel, the ten tribes in the north banded together to form a defensive alliance against Assyria sweeping across from the north they tried to coerce Judah to join their party, what do you do? If your enemies seek you to do something and they've got an enemy, well, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so what Judah did was she appealed to Assyria and said, look, these guys are trying to keep you out. This is like, uh, uh, you know, Dubbo and Baphis forming a strong defensive unit against America. <laughs> All right. So here comes the US of A, the United States of Assyria, just kind of swooping down, and bang, they completely crushed uh, Syria and Israel. Israel was wiped out in 722 BC, never to be reformed. A few scattered dots of people, Samaritans in, in Samaria, that's who they became. But really the nation of the ten tribes was just completely smashed. Judah had appealed to Assyria and said, look, look protect us, we're not going to try and defend against you and in doing so basically lost her independence became a vassal state to Assyria with a massive taxation burden grinding Assyria uh, sorry, grinding Judah into a kind of national poverty Uh, a couple of decades later one of Judah's kings, Hezekiah, saw an opportunity when there was a change of power in the capital of Assyria rebelled, said we're not paying this tax no more uh, but was herself crushed without mercy and Judah herself almost wiped out again uh, sorry, almost wiped out, just like the Northern Kingdom. But the glory days are still rolling when Isaiah starts to prophesy in the year that King Uzziah died of a magnificent reign, 740 BC, glorious, that is, economically and militarily, but disastrous spiritually and socially. Chapters 1 to 5 that we're going to look at today uh, in a little more pace than we might otherwise do describe this spiritual and social catastrophe in Israel. Uh, What's interesting about them is that they're undated. They they occur as prophecies. They could have taken place at any point, really, during Isaiah's ministry. Uh, They're undated they have no specific time reference and as such, function as a general prologue or preface to the whole of the prophecy and specifically as the context into which Isaiah is called in chapter 6. Listen to how he starts. It's not a good start. This 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 is not a kind of soft, slightly jokey, get a few laughs out of your audience Kind of beginning to a prophecy. The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken, is what the Lord has said. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. The two most stupid animals you can ever find. Ox and donkey. And even they know who owns them. But, says God, Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, People laden with iniquity. Offspring who do evil. Children who deal corruptly. Who have forsaken the Lord. Who have despised the Holy One of Israel. Who are utterly estranged. Why do you seek further beatings? Why do you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head there is no sound soundness in it but bruises and sores and bleeding wounds. that have not been drained or bound up or softened with oil. Uh, one quick comment. I hope you have a Bible with you. Uh, it's just one of those things that you need. Um, I, I, I made an offer to yesterday's group. Uh, no one took me up so I can refer, uh, repeat it again today. If you don't have a Bible, there are, there's Kmart, Kurong just down the road uh, in... Um, Westride, there's more books up here, more expensive, but you know, less commercial or something. Uh, and they will sell you Bible. and I will subsidize your Bible, because you need a Bible. If you're going to enter this intellectual milieu of Sydney University, you need your cheap weapon, a Bible. Uh, and I will subsidize your Bible to the tune of one dollar. Okay, so that'll seriously reduce your cost. But you need to have a Bible. Get a little Bible, unless you want to do a bit of weightlifting, get a big fat Bible, do a sort of arm lift on your way to uni. Bring a Bible to uni. You just need a Bible at uni. You read your Bible, Isaiah chapter 1, and what it says is these are hard hearts, hard hearts in the face of serious blessing. Look particularly at verse 4. Four crucial covenantal terms are used to describe Israel but but have been overturned. Uh, Judah is the nation, a nation, or what's left of the nation of Israel, called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in Exodus chapter 19, but now not a holy nation, literally a sinning nation. These are God's people. The great covenant promises that I will be your God and you will be my people. But instead of being heavy with God and his glory, they are heavy with iniquity. These are the offspring, or literally the seed, that great term which describes the promise of God to Abraham and to his seed that he'll have many descendants as many as the stars of heaven and that they will inherit all the earth but now instead of being people descended of the covenant of God's goodness their descent is traced to evil that's what they are the seed of, the offspring of evil these are children of God as Israel himself was called the children of God in Exodus chapter 4 reared by the Lord himself now corrupted, rotten at their core. Now in love the Lord has disciplined this, his nation and his people, the offspring of the covenant and his own children. Uh, I have children myself. I've, I've raised them, eight, five and three. and Actually nine, he had a birthday on Monday. Nine, five and three. We going a Wonderland on Saturday just before it so what a great dad am I. Nine, five and three. I can't remember his age. Uh, and it's important to discipline your children. I'm a bit of a fan of the, 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 the dispatch, how to mid-on, you know, the, the whack.
1: Uh,
0: I think that's important. Uh, others don't, and we can talk about, you know, raising kids God's way some other time. The Lord has disciplined this, his nation and his people. That's what you do when you love. But still, they do not return. They are sick from head to toe, rebellious in their hearts, and destined for disaster. This is the character of their national life as God's people. It gets worse. Their spiritual life is equally corrupted. Listen to verse ten. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of. Now, what should he say next? You rulers of Israel, you rulers of Judah. Hear, oh, but what? Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the teaching of our God, you people of. Gomorrah. Now these towns don't even exist anymore. They are towns of ancient reputation for utter depravity that were completely destroyed by God. These are cutting words. Isaiah calling his listeners Sodom and Gomorrah is like me addressing you here, O oh, EU child molesters, you terrorists and disgraceful, violent virus on this earth. <laughs> These are terms of abuse and disgust. And then the Lord dares his heart. Listen, verse 11. Speaking now, not of their national life so much, but of their religious life. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and of the fat of the fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls, or of lambs, or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who asks this from your hand? trample my courts no more, bring offerings. is futile incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling a convocation. That is the, the monthly and the weekly and the annual festivals. I cannot endure solemn assemblies with iniquity. Your new moons and your appointed festivals my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary, weary of bearing them. Now, if, if you're at all attuned to your Old Testament, you know that this is an astonishing paragraph. What is the Lord saying here? What's the answer to the question? Who asked this from your hand? You know who asked this from God from their hands, don't you? God did, for crying out loud. It was by the Lord's own command that they offer sacrifices. It's by the Lord's own command that they make burnt offerings and spill blood and keep special days. All of these are part of the Torah, the law, the old covenant requirement, 613 prohibitions and commandments. What's gone wrong? Has the Lord just had a change of heart? Is he is he kind of into sacrifices one day but sort of sick of them the next day? Now what you see here is the corruption of true religion. It can happen in Israel, it can happen in the church. Uh, for Israel, the law, the, the Torah, the sacrifices and holy days and festivals... They were always about the heart. It's just not true to say that, well, they were just external things that the Lord said to do, but don't... No, they always were about the heart then as well. And without the heart, they become just empty vessels. They degenerate first into formalism and then subsequently into hypocrisy. Formalism is when the substance is confused with the form. When you think what matters is the outward and visible sign rather than the inward and spiritual reality. You, you read your Bible because you know you ought to read your Bible but there's no humble, patient openness of heart to the Word of God. You just chug through it. You go to church, you say your prayers, perhaps you get baptised or take the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, whatever your thing is, you do this stuff, <laughs> your Christian thing, but really it's just all about the approval of others or even worse feeling good about yourself you're in with a nice group and the Lord says my soul hates formalism formalism though is only one step away from hypocrisy hypocrisy of course is even worse it's when you say one thing you profess one thing but then you do another you you profess the Lord of love but then there's no love in your heart towards others You just live in indifference towards others. You profess the Lord of truth but you just shave the truth whether it's the truth of facts that have occurred in your life or the truth of the gospel. You just shave it wherever you go when it suits you. Corruption of true religion takes the form either of formalism or of hypocrisy. And make no mistake about it the Lord hates his soul is disgusted with formalism and with hypocrisy. The Lord wants nothing other than the fullness of your heart and anything less than your heart is disgusting to God. I heard recently of a Christian guy, a seriously smart, seriously successful Christian man. He made enough money to retire early and enrolled, as he's serious about his Christianity, in a theology course. Now, he genuinely loves to study, but people get the sense when they're with him, mostly what he loves is to be right. When he was in high school, he was on the debating team, and never quite graduated. He approaches conversations like a lawyer, marshalling evidence to prove his case. He's superb at pointing out the logical flaws to people who disagree with him, especially his wife, whose sense of herself has slowly atrophied during the course of their marriage. This guy wins many arguments. He's a gift for sarcasm, and he communicates in patience, disdain, and condescension. He takes himself and his opinions and his prestige with deadly seriousness. And he's very alone. He keeps winning arguments and losing friends. And he doesn't seem to realise that every time people are with him they come away just a little emotionally bruised. On the outside he's offering his sacrifices, right? He's bringing his offerings. He's keeping his new moons and his sabbaths and his festivals for crying out loud. He's done that pinnacle of Christian devotion. He's gone to Bible college. But the Lord says of him, and the Lord says of Judah, and maybe the Lord says even of you, of us here, my soul, hates formalism and hypocrisy. Listen to it, verse 15. When you stretch out your hands, the position of prayer, right? God says, when you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. They're not full of prayers. They're full of blood, violence, hatred. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Have the substance as well as the form. Don't, don't scrap the form. but it's not The, the immature response is to say, well, I'm going to ditch the form and just be a person of substance. Uh, that's just immaturity. You need the form. It was given by God in the Old Covenant. It's given by Him in the New Covenant to go to church, to take your place in the community of God's people, to receive the sacrament, uh, to read your Bible, to do the, your prayers. All of that stuff. The form is necessary. It's necessary in union with the substance. right uh, here? Like Blessing has led only to sin for Israel. And so God says there will be cleansing judgment. There always will be judgment. Listen to it, chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore says the sovereign, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will pour out my wrath on my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you. I will smelt away your dross as with lime, and remove all your ally. And I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Notice that this judgment is a cleansing judgment. He will smelt away their dross. He'll put them through the fire. It will hurt. It will burn up stuff, but it will burn up what's impure. And you've got to ask yourself when you're going through hard times if what the Lord is doing is he's putting you through the fire of cleansing judgment, burning away the dross of your life, the unworthy motives, the inadequate goals, the substandard purposes in order to leave what is only pure and true and faithful. consequence of this cleansing judgment then is grace. Listen to it, chapter 2, verse 2. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord unto the house of the God of Jacob. You can start singing if you like. That's not in the text. Then he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth Instruction, literally the law, Torah, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning books. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. This is a magnificent scene of, of grace after judgment, isn't it? A dramatic movement. In place of corrupt worship, that was the, the second of the two problems identified, in place of corrupt worship, will be true worship. The mountain of the Lord's house will be lifted up. Uh, It's a metaphor. Height equals authority, power, recognition. The temple of God will be recognised and honoured as glorious, established as the highest of all the mountains. It will be a place of reliable, heartfelt faithfulness to the Lord. It will be lifted up. The nations will come streaming in. What a movement. And the instruction, the Torah, the law of God will go forth. Poor, forth. No more formalism, no more hypocrisy. True religion. And as a consequence of that, in place of the corrupt national life, that first section that we looked at, there will be true prosperity and peace. Implements of violence will become implements that produce vegetables. And war, war which threatens Judah all around, will be no more. You see this pattern? This is one, one, one to 2 four. Uh, this is a great promise here, by the way, isn't it? This two, chapter 2, verse 2 to 4. It's a great vision. You need to pause and ask yourself, as you always do when you read the Old Testament, uh, what has happened to these promises? Take them seriously. Don't, don't kind of just treat them casually. What is the future for Israel? What is the place of the Torah, the law? It's supposed to go forth. Um, should we all be abstaining from bacon? That's when the EU ran bacon, lettuce and tomato... Um, rolls, if you're lucky enough to get them being in the first, you know, 200 people in the queue or something at O-Week, instead of just getting a tomato roll maybe tomatoes, kosher bacon, lettuce, tomatoes, you, you sin you sinful people that's what the promise is, that the law will go forth I should, I've started growing a sidey actually two sideys on my, my wife thinks it looks less bad than it did before and, and, um, and the law says don't shave your sideburns you didn't know that, did you? The law says don't wear clothes with two types of um, uh, weave, you know, two types of uh, stuff. What did, what did you say? Two types of things, you know, materials or fibres. That's the one. Two types of fibres. You can see what a snaggy guy I am, you know. And this is this is this is rubbish. This has got cotton and polyester or something. I didn't write that down. I just made that up, and I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm not going to ask how many guys here are circumcised. We can do that little experiment sometime. And, uh, oh no, don't do it, please. The law says unambiguously an everlasting covenant is circumcision. And here is the promise of God, the prophecy of God that the law will go forth. And you couldn't give a toss about the law, frankly, could you? You don't even know what's in it. You wouldn't know 20 of the 613, is might be. What's happened to the promise of God? Do these promises still hold? Perhaps we should see the modern state of Israel as the fulfilment of biblical prophecy. That's the, in Israel a temple will be raised up. At the moment there's a mosque on it, so we've got to trash the mosque. We've got to support the Israelites against the Palestinians. At least this is what thousands upon thousands of American Christians think, and fairly good biblical evidence for it, don't you think? If you take Isaiah's prophecy seriously, or do you have something else that you do? Do you understand Jesus to have done? a remarkable process of what reinterpretation of grabbing these promises and making them point not at Israel and temple per se but at himself these are vital questions that we need to ask when we Christians read the Old Testament and we'll come back to them over the course of our time in Isaiah during the rest of this year now not the time to answer so I want you to start getting uncomfortable as you read the promises and, and have to do the work the hard work in in doing what's called biblical theology Isaiah rushes on this may be the vision the ideal but the reality is a million miles from it we pick it up at chapter 2 verse 5 listen to this Isaiah says O house of Jacob come let us walk in the light of the Lord for you have forsaken the ways of your people O house of Jacob indeed they are full of diviners from the east and of soothsayers like the Philistines They clasp hands with foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols and they bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. And so people are humbled and everyone is brought low. Do not forgive them, says Isaiah. The second section of this prologue is from 2.5 to 4.1. And it runs through this same cycle of blessing, sin, judgment and grace culminating in another poem of beautiful prophecy and promised by God for Zion to be raised up uh, in 4 uh, verses uh, 2 to 4. Uh, it's centered around two key instructions. The first one is there in chapter 2 verse 5. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And the second one is in chapter 2, verse 22, which is turn away from mortals who have only breath in their mouths. They're the two instructions. One's positive, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The other one's negative, let us turn away from mortals. Together they sum up what it is to be the people of God, to do God's thing, to walk in the light of the Lord, to turn away from mortals who have only breath in their mouths. Now in each case the command is followed by a description of sin and an announcement of judgment. The first one from 2.5 to 2.21 deals a second time with Israel's religious life and her idolatry. The second deals again with Israel's national life and her social and national leadership. Together they are a terrible, humiliating indictment on the state of Israel's heart. We're going to pass over them uh, quickly, although if you have time, if, uh, if you catch a bus or re- uh, train or something home to this afternoon, if you have the courage, it's well worth reading. but uh, deeply challenging to us. Uh, if you drive home, um, watch the road. <laughs>
1: um,
0: listen to the contrast, saying even the paragraph we just read, with the vision of chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Chapter 2, 1 to 4, that great poem was all about the nation streaming into Zion. Uh, the indictment of Israel is rather that Zion is pandering after the nations she clasps hands with foreigners instead of seeking as though the nations seeking spiritual benefit from Israel Israel seeks material benefit from her entwinement with the nations her land is filled with silver and gold there's no end to their treasures instead of world peace Israel uh, is a key player in the armament industry filling her land with horses and having no end to her chariots see the contrast between the vision and the reality. Instead of the knowledge of God, Judah invents God, filling her land with idols and bowing down to what their own fingers have made. Instead of the world received by God, God abandons Judah. Listen to this anatomy of betrayal. Israel walks in the darkness of her own arrogance and idolatry and has nothing to give to the nations, but rather is hideously conformed to the nations. It is a terrible prospect, isn't it? God's own people, God's old covenant people then, and even God's new covenant people now, the church, Christians, you and me, for goodness sake, walking not in the light of the Lord, but walking in the darkness of the world. In what ways might we have abandoned the light of the Lord? What might be the anatomy? of your conformity to the world I think there are so many things to say about our culture uh, as, as we look at it but perhaps the truest thing of all is the crass brazen consumerism which is just absolutely rampant the views that life really does consist in the abundance of your possessions they're not just possessions they're not the only things you can buy that life consists in the abundance of your experiences of your options of your fun. That happiness is obtained by maximising these things. And then when you're sad or heavy in heart, then what you need is a bit of retail therapy for crying out loud. Go and buy some new thing. And of course, underlying consumerism is a commitment first and foremost and perhaps only to me, to my enjoyment, to my satisfaction, to my rights, to my future. This is the anatomy of our culture. In this, there's no place seriously for sacrifice. It just is nonsensical. There's no place for service. Who's going to serve? You, you, you get onto boards and committees. I mean, why do you think that people are running for the union at the moment out of service? Well, they might talk that talk, but really? I, the friends I've had who've run onto the union board is entirely so that they can put it on their CV and it will look good and they'll get the next thing. Mike, Ryan knows best about this, he, eventually his Rhodes Scholarship. It worked for him. There's no place for, for sacrifice, for service, There's no place really for love in a culture like this. Love gets replaced by sex. You see that uh, time and time again. It's just another experience, sex, therefore, to be analysed, gossiped about and maximised. It is disgusting. It's pathetic, this consumerist culture in which we live. It is degenerate and it is degrading. I hope you see that. I hope your eyes are open to that. The question to ask, of course is how much is it in us? How consumerist are you? Even about your Christian walk and involvement, how consumerist are you? How much are your relationships about you? How much is it about me and my enjoyment and my comfort and my protection? How much is my Christian involvement really a function of what I get out of it? And if things are not up to standard, if, if the Bible study group's not that interested in me, if I don't get much out of it, uh, if I've got a better offer, if you know, there's some brilliant TV program like Oprah to watch, you know, that'll be a little more entertaining to me. I mean, the whole entertainment industry is built on this far billions of dollars to keep you laughing for crying out loud. Well, you might as well go and consume something else. And as Isaiah says to us, O house of Jacob, O house of E.U., come, let us walk in the light of the Lord, turn away from mortals who have only breath in their mouths, for what account are they? Following these two commands, there are two uh, statements of utterly terrifying judgment, Uh, we're going to have to leave them out, Uh, which deal with the two problems, The, the judgment on idolatry, which will be People will cast their idols away. Uh, Verse 20, people will throw away to the moles and to the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, their their video cameras and their DVDs and their iPods. You know, whatever it is you sold your soul for, they'll they'll, throw them all away. Or a judgment which is the complete undoing of the national life of Israel, taking away all leadership. But again, just as in chapter 1, There is grace. This is cleansing judgment. And the beautiful poem at the end of chapter 4 speaks of a remnant who will be left after this judgment and God will be amongst his people in a cloud by day and fire by night. That rings bells, right? And it will be present with his people just like the good old days of Exodus. And the pattern is repeated right through to the end of chapter 4. It's this pattern, blessing, sin, judgment, grace, That makes chapter 5 so terrifying. Because chapter 5 speaks of wonderful grace. It's a beautiful poem of a a vineyard that was planted by God, which has had every possible attention. God has dug and cleansed, uh, this, cleared this vineyard from stones. He's planted it with choice vines, not just ordinary scabby vines. He built a watchtower in the middle of it to keep those rotten birds away. And the question, the terrifying question is asked what more was there to do for the vineyard than was not done? Sorry, than was done. What more was there to do that was not done? Nothing. Nothing could possibly have been done for this vineyard, Israel, that was not done. There's all blessing in chapter 5. But still she sinned. The fruit of Israel's national life and her religious life was not pure and sweet and delicious it was vile and wild and disgusting blessing led to sin and failure and every blessing led to every sin and failure and so the sin the, the will be followed as ever by judgment God will undo the blessing and remove it take away the hedge, break down its wall making it a wasteland and what comes next? You know from the first four chapters what comes next, right? What comes next is... There's no blessing, there's no grace at the end of chapter 5. Chapter 5 ends with absolute hopelessness. What more could have been done for Judah? Nothing. And therefore what hope can there be for Judah when there's nothing more to do for her? Nothing. The chapter ends, uh, God calling Assyria, whistling for a nation to come. <whistles> come on, come on Assyria, like a good little dog, come on. And verse 30, chapter 5, they will roar over it on that day like the roaring of the sea. And if one look to the land, only darkness and distress, and the light grows dark with clouds. And the prologue to Isaiah's prophecy leaves us with the question, is this the end of grace? Is this the end of blessing? And it's into this context, to this people, to these hard hearts, where nothing yet has been left undone, that Isaiah is sent as a prophet of God. Well, let me draw the threads together very quickly. This is a very profound word, I think, to our university. Of all the people of Sydney, the people who wander up and down lecture uh, theatres here and in and out uh, of the library and so on and so on, must be among the most blessed people in this city and, frankly, in the world. What has the Lord withheld from most of the people who sit in our lectures and choose? They have wealth enough so that they don't have to work. They have intelligence enough so they can get to this intellectual tower they have freedom enough so that they live in relative safety, what has the Lord withheld from them? And you know the answer. The answer is basically nothing. But still they sin. They live in unbelief, in miserable, arrogant ignorance. Can I say that it might be you here? You're not a person who's ever actually really handed your life over to Jesus. You've never really honoured him as the one who has made you or given him thanks. And now is the time to turn that all around. Isaiah puts it in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Though your sins are like scarlet, red, virulent, bright, obvious, awful, sinful scarlet, they shall be like snow, clean, white, pure, if you are willing and obedient if you turn to the Lord. Don't let it run out for you. Don't let it run out for you. But, of course, these chapters are not really written to unbelievers at all. Therefore, they're about the church, God's people, you and me. And the challenge they put to us, I think, is this. God has thrown every blessing at us that's possible, far more even than Isaiah knew, hey? He's not withheld his own son for us. What more was there to do? And he expects to see amongst his people a fruit, a yield, of grapes pure, glorious spiritual reality dripping from the branches of your life that's why the Lord plants his vineyard to see fruit a character formed in the image of Christ full of love and tenderness towards others full of truth and holiness and devotion to the Lord patient and kind and overflowing with joy no matter what life's circumstances are He expects to see fruit in your life, a spiritual discipline where there's a correspondence between the inside and the outside, a rejection of formalism and hypocrisy. He expects to see fruit, an unembarrassed, unashamed joy in declaring before others that Jesus is Lord, in being in in, in appropriate ways and appropriate contexts, testifying to the goodness of God and the sacrifice of Christ and the Lordship of Jesus at the right hand of God fruit as you reach out to others with the gospel the Lord plants his vineyard and he expects to see fruit amongst us not just a pale imitation of the culture around us and the question that we're left with and it's a hard question and it's one that takes an examination for ourselves both as a group and individuals is is that what the Lord sees when he looks at you when he looks at me when he looks at us in the EU, is that what the Lord sees is that the truth about our lives fruitfulness let's pray our Lord Jesus Christ we pray that you would so fill us with your Holy Spirit that you would change and transform us more and more
1: and more into your likeness and we ask it for your glory Amen.